if you look at our place in history, we're at a we're at a very unique spot in history. Um, in the last 200 years, it's a handful of generations. We've gone from half a billion people to eight billion people. It's going to change the demographics of politics if certain people are targeted more with this type of disinformation abuse. Well, I would say AI is all around us. I think that every time we're concerned about privacy, it's a valid concern. It should be top of mind, especially for technologists. Welcome back to a special bonus episode of SHI's Innovation Heroes, a podcast exploring the people and businesses making a difference in our constantly disrupted world. I'm your host, Ed McNamara. As we get ready for the launch of Season 5 of Innovation Heroes, coming to you later this summer, we thought it would be a good idea to look back at some of the best moments we've had together on this show. That's why over the next few weeks, we're releasing four special bonus episodes, each of them diving deep into a particular theme. With nearly 40 conversations to choose from, there's a lot of amazing insights and inspiration to unpack. So let's get started. Climate change, disinformation, global pandemics. Not to be a buzzkill, but there's been no shortage of major challenges facing our world these last few years. The good news is, there's also been no shortage of heroes. On this first bonus episode of Innovation Heroes, we're taking a closer look at, you guessed it, the heroes. And trust me, on this show, we get to meet a lot of them. Sometimes our guest is the hero, sometimes it's a technology, a startup, or a major brand. The one thing all these heroes have in common is that they are using innovation to make our world a safer, smarter, and better place to live. For the first conversation featured on today's episode, we'll be looking to the stars to find some heroic inspiration. Back in January of 2022, I met with Andy Lapsa, co-founder of Stoke Space Technologies. Andy spent the last decade working at Blue Origin, where he directed the BE3 and BE3U engines projects. But at Stoke, he's embarking on his own spaceflight venture with the mission of making a completely reusable second stage rocket. Together we discuss how his company and the next few years of space research will have huge implications on our future. Creating sustainable and commercialized spaceflight won't just solve many of our biggest short-term problems, it has the potential to completely change our lives here on Earth forever. The question then is, okay, why go start a new company? And that was not a linear path for me, let's say. One of the things I noticed in my last couple of years at Blue is, first of all, it's a different company than when I started. It's much, much bigger. Um, and you know, there were reasons why I wanted to start thinking about what what's next. And then the next thing that really energized me was the shift in market that started to happen in my last couple of years at Blue. Um, you started to see this really vibrant and viable commercial sector in space, lots of different verticals emerging and lots of competition within each vertical. And those are kind of the ingredients that you need to have a healthy, robust economy in space. And this was all starting to happen um, in, you know, kind of 2015, 2016 and beyond. And I got excited by, by that. And I guess may, maybe one epiphany I had, it's not really that profound, but um, for me, I realized that, you know, I'm all about 
Elon's mission of colonizing Mars. I'm all about Jeff's mission of having millions of people living and working in space. I love both of those things, but I think if you're going to have either one of them, the ingredient that you must have first is a robust and healthy economy in space. And then that foundation is what leads to a sustainable, long-term, very grand visions. So I wanted to be a part of it. So this idea of taking Earth-based tech and moving it into space, um, it seems pretty incredible. Um, why do we need to be looking at making options like this possible? Basically, moving technology from from being Earth-based, you know, in, into space itself. You know, why does it matter, and you know, how can we benefit from it, and what makes it the right time to to start doing that now? Here's one thing that motivates me. If you look at our place in history, we're at a we're at a very unique spot in history. Um, it's it's been about 200 years ago. Let's go back 200 years. Our global population was about half a billion people. Um, so you know, for perspective, we've been around you know tens of thousands of years, long, long, long time, and it took that long to get to half a billion people. In the last 200 years, it's a handful of generations. We've gone from half a billion people to eight billion people, and if you were to plot that, it looks like a horizontal line and then a very distinct inflection point and a vertical line. And so we're at this point in history where our population is scaling at a uh, incredible pace and there's all kinds of follow-on, um, I guess, metrics that also follow that trajectory, right? Um, carbon emissions in the atmosphere, all kinds of things. Uh, energy production, energy use, right, is almost one-to-one. -one. You can lay those two plots almost you know one for one on top of each other it's it's pretty interesting metric so all of this stuff is happening it's happening in a very short period of time i think it's fair to say that none of us fully understand what the impact of that step change has it has been and is going to be and i think so there's there's a couple of things i think that if we're going to put our civilization on a track that is not only sustainable, but also scalable. I think space is a necessary ingredient, a necessary pillar to doing that. It's also a fundamentally necessary pillar for us to understand. This is step one, understand what's happening in our Earth. You know, a lot of, a lot of the things that we know today are based on space-based observation. Things like, um, you know, uh, our uh, ice caps melting, right? We get all of that from space-based observation. We get... Um, you know, ocean currents, we get we get all kinds of things from, from space. There's a lot more that needs to be done in space, right? One example where I think space plays a, a big role is, um, you know, let's take uh, forest fires. Forest fires, this is a shocking statistic that I didn't know. Over 20% of our global carbon emissions come from forest fires every year. It's an amazing number. And so when you start to think about how are we going to curb carbon emissions, there's no answer that's complete unless you address forest fires. There's all kinds of other observations. You know, there's there's different um, ways to observe plastic concentrations, you know, microplastics in the oceans. We can observe who major emitters of different things like plastics or like carbon or, or whatever. We can figure out what those sources are and then we can go uh, mitigate those things. So that's step one. I think I think um, not only understanding what's happening in the world, but also you know how to fix it. Nanoramic Laboratories is responsible for the NeoCarbonix electrode technology, an innovation that is changing the world of lithium-ion energy storage. That doesn't just mean better batteries. 
Nanoramic's more efficient, more powerful lithium-ion batteries will be instrumental in tackling the ever-growing climate crisis. This episode from Season 4 featured my discussion with John Cooley, Chief of Products at Nanoramic Laboratories. It aired on January 12, 2023. For those of us who are less knowledgeable about energy storage, can you explain what technology you developed and how it innovated battery power? Yeah, sure. So we started in um, what I consider to be, you know, sort of a niche energy storage technology. And this is called a supercap or an ultra capacitor. This was the um, topic or the subject of the original DOE grant award that we won. And that technology is actually not a battery. It's all electrostatic, which means that you're not storing energy in a chemical reaction, but you're storing it in electric fields. It's a pretty unique type of capacitor. It has very, very high surface area on on its electrodes, and it's because the electrodes are nanostructured. And it's a relatively low voltage device, but it holds a lot of energy compared to sort of conventional capacitors. It's also rechargeable, and it's almost infinitely rechargeable. So it has some distinctions from sort of what you consider to be a, a typical chemical battery or lithium battery. Over the years, we won a number of different sort of follow-on government funding awards and commercial contracts to develop some of that technology into different applications. In particular, our alpha market was sort of the opposite of clean tech, kind of ironically. We identified oil and gas drilling as our alpha market because it was sort of a low volume, high price point market. And we were the only ones to be able to re-engineer these super cap devices into harsh environments like that application required. We view the way that we overcome challenges as sort of a badge of honor. You know, you, you want to see that both in a product and a team, that the product and team are resilient and robust, definitely have overcome hurdles and challenges. The earliest and most notable challenge for us was that, like I said, our alpha market was not electric vehicles, but it was really the opposite market, oil and gas drilling. And we had become successful in that application in about 2014 and 2015. And then in sort of late 2015, that market, if you remember, collapsed. Oil went from $120 a barrel to about $25 a barrel Mm -hmm. in just a couple of months. And so when that happens in oil and gas, you don't sort of lose 10 or 20% of your sales. Your your customers actually go bankrupt and, and they disappear. And um, as a small company in Boston at the time, you know, we, had, we were already spread pretty thin. So that caused us to really have to um, work hard to overcome some problems. We ended up pivoting the focus of the company from what had become very sophisticated electronics and power system. We pivoted from that to more of a focus on just the energy storage technology itself. Does this technology help you know, mitigate the environmental impact of having to dispose of spent batteries and things like that? So what are some of the benefits you know, to this technology in terms of reducing you know, impact on the environment? Yeah, for sure. So, and just to be clear, so the uh, the supercap technology that we developed that that is a technology that's fundamentally rechargeable many many times, millions of times in some cases. When we transfer the core innovations to lithium-ion batteries, that's not really one of the features that you bring over. Although we do impact re- rechargeability, um, and we also impact sustainability, and I'll explain how that works. Um, so there are a few different ways that we impact sustainability and total product life cycle for lithium ion batteries. 
For one thing, eliminating this binder material, it actually happens to eliminate the need for a particular solvent that's used in the battery manufacturing process. And that solvent's both toxic and it's also very difficult to dry. Because it's difficult to dry, it requires a lot of energy um, to dry that, to remove that solvent, dry it or evaporate it in the battery manufacturing process, especially for the coating process for one of the two electrodes inside of the battery, that's a cathode. And when we eliminate that solvent, we um, we actually we reduce that drying energy consumption by about 75%. At a battery manufacturing plant level, that reduces the total manufacturing energy consumption by about 25%. Just to give you sort of a number on that, that's about a, a half a million metric tons of CO2 emissions reductions per year per battery gigafactory. The other way, one another way, or one other way that we sort of impact sustainability is sort of on the safety side. So that solvent that we eliminate as a result of being able to eliminate the binder, that solvent is toxic. It's recognized by the U.S. EPA as a uh, unreasonable risk to workers, and it's also regulated in the EU for its toxicity. And we eliminate that solvent. So we make the battery manufacturing process safer for the workers. The internet can be a force for good and great evil. As much as it has strengthened our connectivity to the rest of the world, it's also been known to spread disinformation like wildfire. And that can be a real threat to democracy and society as a whole. To fight back, innovation heroes like our next guest are using technologies such as big data and network visualization to diagnose the problem and hopefully put a stop to it all. I met with Alexandra Pavliuk, a doctoral researcher, to find out more about this powerful use case of network visualization. This season three episode aired on January 6th, 2022. So people who engage in these types of, of false narratives, um, you know, whether it's sexualized, racist, or, or transphobic, you know, content, you know, what, what's, what's the end game? I know that the data might not necessarily point to that, but can you use data to figure out the goal? So the hunch that I've kind of looked into with with other researchers is that we think it's really to dissuade women from being in the public light. So in the case of women politicians, this could be coming from people who are trying to convince the women themselves and convince kind of the world that women don't belong in the public light, don't belong in politics. And of course, if women fall fall down to this and really kind of internalize the terrible things that are said about them online. And the more prominent you are as a politician, the more of this kind of stuff you're going to get, whether you're a man or a woman. Um, but it tends to be more violent and um, quite quite nasty if you're a woman receiving it. It's going to change the, the demographics of politics if certain people are targeted more with this type of disinformation abuse and they choose to, you know, decide it's not worth continuing with. There's been examples of that. When Twitter started releasing massive, really treasure trove data sets of foreign state-backed information operations, so to break that down, that is essentially they were releasing big Excel spreadsheets, CSVs of tweets coming that they have attributed to certain states as part of a an effort by the state to put out these tweets. So it was a kind of a, it's an, it called an information operation. And what I did first was take the Russian data set and essentially visualize these fake users, these fake accounts. There was about 3,600 of them. And I visualized their interactions with each other and with other users. So the nodes in my network were users. And by playing this over time, I was able 
able to see certain groups of users in this data set, essentially testing out different strategies to see what was the best way to seem like a normal person online. And this was in the run-up to the 2016 US election. So for example, I was able to, through network visualization, see a cluster of users who were just retweeting trending hashtags because I'm sure some somebody in the Russian Internet Research Agency office thought, oh, maybe that's a way that we can look American before the election and then people will follow us and then we'll, um, we'll, we'll have lots of people following us around the election. So it's different strategies you can see. And I published a Medium article where I expanded this to six different countries' information operations. And the surprising thing from putting this research out there was how much traction I actually got on this article that I'd published, because people were able to, for the first time, see the information operation at a higher bird's eye view. Not just one screenshot of a tweet or image that was published or avatar image of one account from from one of these countries' operations, you could see the whole thing unfolding in front of your eyes. COVID-19 showed us that most of the healthcare systems we relied on were woefully ill-prepared for what was coming. But with emerging AI technologies, digitization, and an unprecedented degree of collaboration, there was hope to be found, and plenty of it. In this next conversation, original host Peter Bean is joined by Stacy Shulman, Intel's Vice President of the Internet of Things Group and General Manager of Health, Life Science, and Emerging Technologies. Together, they discuss how COVID-19 sparked a huge leap forward in healthcare and how all these advancements in medicine will make a difference far beyond treating the virus. Well, I would say AI is all around us. In the medical space, even things like x-rays and CT scans, AI is being used so that you can have less exposure to that radiation. So what will happen is AI starts making some assumptions about the fact that, okay, there, there might be a bone there and, and it can, you know, remove that out of the way so that you can get a better picture. So things like that, where understanding, okay, your leg isn't being placed in in the right position for the for the X-ray to happen. So reposition the leg. You can use AI to to determine is it positioned correctly or not before you start with the X-ray. That would be one example. We've also seen other examples where ultrasounds are being done. It is absolutely mind blowing what you can see now. It is really like seeing the baby you know, in full view. So little things like that, it, it adds up. It makes a big difference. Those are some of the ways that AI is being used today. Privacy is obviously going to be the biggest hot button issue in this topic. Can you, again, in a layman's level, explain the challenges there? And are these concerns really rooted in reality that, that I'm reading about? Or are they just simply born out of fear of the unknown? I think there's both. I think that every time we're concerned about privacy, it's a valid concern. It should be top of mind, especially for technologists. We have to be very careful with understanding that the data that we're being trusted with is sensitive and it needs to be handled with care. And so um, I would say, yeah, there's some horror stories out there. There is some fear that isn't, I'll say, as real. But truthfully, like, you know, if we think of what we would want with our information. I wouldn't want my doctor emailing my information to some researcher. 
you know, I want to know that all of my my identifiable information was stripped out of that. Yeah. You know, I'm okay with my data being used in combination with other people's information so that we can create the right therapies for people. But I wouldn't be okay with that, you know, finding its way into the internet and and published, you know, publicly. And so those are the types of things that we have to be really careful of. And thankfully, the medical system has has that in their DNA. That's part of the challenge that we're dealing with is there is so much regulation on sharing information that we have to be extra careful. I could know that what I shared helped save somebody's life. Yeah, I'll sign up for that. Um, if I can also be assured that my data is being treated with confidentiality and professionalism. It seems like you have a job now that is directly linked to the struggles we're all going through. What has the last year of your professional life been like? Yeah, it's been wild. So um, when I remember back in February of 2020, the things that I thought I was going to be talking about through 2020 was consumer experience and digitization of the experience. About two weeks after I attended the opening of the Sinclair Hotel, which we've talked about I received a call from friends at XPRIZE, and XPRIZE is an organization that does big innovation challenges, and my organization has been working with them on setting up infrastructure for data scientists, and what we were focused on at that time was we wanted to track the destruction of our rainforests, and so we were setting up a multi-year project, and the intent was let's put an environment in place for data scientists so they can log in and immediately get to the work instead of spending most of their time trying to fix data and get data ready. So anyways, COVID hits, and this organization calls me and says, I know we were going to do that for Rainforest, but can we use that instead for COVID? Because we we have health companies coming in with, with viral records and wanting to do something with that immediately. And of course, we said, yes, absolutely. And within less than a month, we had millions of viral records in that database. And we had data scientists working on looking at that data to track COVID trends. When I look back, the last year has been absolutely consumed with how do we take the, the collective intelligence of our community and get them you know, focused on what matters most right now. And that is stopping this pandemic saving lives and making sure that we're preparing for whatever comes after this. Thank you for listening to this special bonus episode of Innovation Heroes. If you like what you heard today, please make sure to share this episode with a friend or colleague and to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcast. We'll be back soon with another great bonus episode, this time all about the heroes at the front lines of customer and workplace experiences. Until then, I'm your host, Ed McNamara, and you've been listening to Innovation Heroes, an SHI podcast.